Today is Deacon Sunday, and I'm Deacon. And many of you may know all about deacons and what the difference is between a deacon and a priest, but many may not. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it and then tell you a little bit about how I came to be called to be a deacon. So uh, I just was yesterday at a celebration over at a CDSP, the seminary in East Bay, for the 30th anniversary of the founding of the School for Deacons here now, our diocese. Uh, many years ago, if you wanted to be a deacon, you just went to your bishop and said that you felt called to be a deacon and discussed it with you, assigned you some readings and maybe someone to be your mentor. And after a few years of reading and studying, if the bishop so desired, he would uh, ordain you to be a deacon. But when we made 1979 prayer book, uh, which made a big difference, then the three ordination services in maybe afterwards or at some point you might want to look at the Book of Common Prayer, changed quite a bit. The, uh, the vows that a priest takes were not changed very much, but the vows that a deacon takes were. And that was in the 79 prayer book also that we all renew our baptismal vows. And we all of us promise every time this is baptism, you know, we all say our vows together again and we renew our baptismal vows. And essentially, we promise to do the same things that a deacon does which is, and I quote here, at ordination, a deacon is charged to, quote, serve all people, particularly the poor, the weak, the sick, and the lonely, to interpret to the church the needs, concerns, and hopes of the world, to make Christ in his redemptive love known by your word and example, and to show Christ's people that in serving the helpless, they are serving Christ himself. Now, uh, that sounds very noble and high. You might be thinking, gee, I would never want to be a deacon. I'm really not that beautiful person. Neither am I. A lot of people who are deacons like to say that to know when you're called to be a deacon, it's not enough to feel called yourself. You, you, you ordinarily, other people in your parish will come to you and say, Betsy, you know what? I had my eye on you. I think you're called to be a deacon. That never happened with me. I was called to be a deacon in a very roundabout way, and so I thought maybe if I told you a little bit about that, you might be thinking that perhaps you yourself are also called to be a deacon. So if you're thinking that you're too young and encumbered with life and children and responsibilities, wait. Or if you're feeling you're too old and you don't have the energy anymore, forget it. This person deacons older than I am. So as I speak, I hope you will be asking yourself the same questions that were asked of me. Deacons make a difference, it says here, in the church and for a hurting world. We form deacons, that's the super deacons who make a difference. So what does this word form mean? It's the same word that we use when we talk about formation, it's in spiritual formation, like that Sally Thomas does here, and others of you may have a spiritual director. It means a way of, of obviously, of shaping a person, discovering what's there, and helping and guiding them in a way that fulfills what was already in them to be expressed. And we all know, most of us, we're all really looking for that. We're looking, we wouldn't be here today, I don't think, if we weren't. We're looking for that way in which we can move forward um, in serving God and the world in a way that feels right to us. And we may have looked at different things and thought, no, just, hmm, not for me, it doesn't have my name on So, um, Here's what happened with me, and it's just one example, and you could have known all my friends for deacons, you would hear many other stories, for example, Deacon Jan, who was here for 13 years, she was a deacon for 
So about, uh, I guess whenever it was, my son was a sophomore at Redwood High School. He was my last child, my second and last child. I had that feeling that mothers have when your child is that age, your last child, and you realize that they got their driver's license kind of gone. <laughs> sort of lost your job. And so you begin to think, or particularly women of my generation who stay home more than they worked in uh, outside of the home, what do I do next? You're still relatively young. You still have to feel like you have a lot to give. So I was thinking about what I could do or what I might do. And I was walking along the Corridor bike path down there in front of Marin General with my friend Kay, talking, talking about this. And she said, well, you might think about this. I just finished doing an internship at Marin General. And it was really interesting and, you know, to be a chaplain, a hospital chaplain. And uh, she said this. I said, hmm, that might be interesting. And she said, there's only one catch. You have to say you'll do it for at least six months, and you have to stay there. You have to be vetted and get the job to begin with. So I said, I'll think about that, because I had been, I lived in London for 13 years with my family, and I had been a volunteer for 10 years at a place called the Samaritans. If any of you travel in England, you may see signs saying, call the Samaritans. It's a, it's a suicide hotline, but also about 50% face-to-face people coming in. And their motto is to befriend the suicidal and despairing. So that word befriend is a very big word within a very much of a hard word for me. And so I, she said, uh, I said, you know what? I have to tell you this. I'm really not interested in doing any more volunteer jobs that aren't paid. Because that was sort of the height of the women's movement and women of my generation were having that feeling. We'd all been working very, very hard for years and not getting paid for it, just doing volunteer work at schools and other places. And she said, well, there actually is a small stipend involved. And the stipend was $500 for six months. <laughs> and I said, okay. It was just sort of, it was just psychological. <laughs> that little bit. So I went and applied for the job. And there were four other people who applied for the job. And I got it, probably based on the fact that I had that 10 years of experience in London. And um, I, I was, guess I was glad. I thought, well, this is interesting. I'll see what, how this works. And then I went home and I thought to myself, you know, I really don't think it's time to what a hospital chaplain actually does. Bruce Murphy, the, the chaplain, <laughs> asked me all sorts of questions about myself, but I wasn't really asking anything about him. So I called him up and I said, I need to shadow you for a day or at least an afternoon. And he said, sure, and I came the next day. And I just went everywhere where he went. And the first place he went is, was to the emergency, I mean, to the ICU. And those of you who remember the old Marin General before we got our fancy new wing, it just had curtains between the, the different beds. And we went in and we visited first a young African-American man named Jason, who was, had just emerged from a coma and was still in a persistent vegetative state. So he was just lying there completely out of it. Uh, teenage, I think he'd been in some sort of escape movie and skateboards, and that's what it all is now, but bicycling accident of some sort. And Bruce came up, and we in the hospital ministry, which is what I do, uh, all believe, because this is what doctors, and more importantly, ICU nurses believe and, and observe, that uh, no matter what stage a patient it is, is in, we believe that they can hear us. And so we speak to them as if they can hear us, and we don't talk about them in front of them about that. So uh, Bruce said, uh, Jason, I'm here with Betsy. She's <coughs> observing me for the afternoon. And we're doing this, that, and the other. And your mom and your older sister came in yesterday, and they said X, Y, and Z. And we just chatted for about five or ten minutes. And he 
said, I'm going to answer the prayer, and he just spoke a very spontaneous prayer, which was etched in my mind forever, and I still use it more or less. And uh, we walked away, and the first day we talked to one of the nurses or something, and I turned and I looked across the way, and there was a woman lying on one of the beds. And I, it came to my mind, it just flashed into my mind, that she looked like a sack of flesh. And before that seems to you a very judgmental and um, disgusting kind of reaction, I have to tell you that when I saw that, at the same moment, I realized that I was not at all disgusted or repelled by that sight. Not in the least, in, in a strange way, I felt drawn to that. And her husband was sitting by her side, an elderly man, who Bruce said came every day and would come in for 10 days from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night and just sat by her side. And that was our first experience. Then we went out and Bruce had to visit a patient with AIDS. This was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And he said it really wasn't appropriate for me to go, not because I was in any danger from the AIDS, but because this, this particular patient would not feel comfortable with him being there. So he showed me into a little room to start waiting with and I waited there for about 45 minutes. And while I was there, two things happened. One was that a family, a, a, a woman came in sort of in her 30s, and she got on the phone and she said, this is before cell phone, so there was a wall phone, and she said, Dad says the next person who comes in, please bring his teeth. <laughs> so they're in the glass next to his bed, and can't do it without some please bring them in. So I go, okay. And then, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, someone came in, a nurse from the OBGYN, and said that, other family been waiting for a baby to be born. They said, it's a girl. And the family just, oh, high five. It's so exciting. And so I thought to myself, this is pretty amazing. The very first time I've seen birth and death or near death and everything in between. So um, just about that moment, I thought to myself, being a good Southern girl, I had this overcoming urge to have a Coca-Cola. <laughs> so I left my first lock in Bruce's office, and I reached my pocket, and I had two quarters. I'll go down to the basement. And any of you who've been in hospitals, large hospitals, probably anywhere in the world will know that the cafeteria is always in the basement. And it's always kind of a depressing, dim, long card. So I went downstairs and I went to the Coke machine and it cost 55 cents. <laughs> and I was just, I, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> so this, this man was coming towards me, an African-American man coming towards me with, you know, a blue sort of uniform. He worked at the hospital and had his name, Warren, on And being, in, in dire straits, I said, excuse me, but da, 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 I don't have 50 cents. Could you lend me a nickel? I'm coming to work here next week. I promise I'll pay it back. And of course, he laughed and gave me a dime in the subject. And something about that encounter with Warren, who I, I came to know very well in, in the uh, 18 months that followed, just made me know this is right for me. This is where I was meant to be. And that was 22 years ago. And I've been working in hospitals as a chaplain ever since, uh, in four different hospitals. I'm now at the Rehab Hospital, where I've been for a few years, which has quite a few head injured young men, just like Jason. So uh, when you go, when you go to the school for deacons, and we have the best school, probably the only one of its kind in the country, and possibly the world, where you actually, if you're looking at the status, where we actually have an academic three semester, three year program, and um, it's a very formal thing where you graduate and have a, 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 actually a bachelor's degree in ministry. Um, you have to go and you have to go to your priest and be sure that you're okay with that. Um, then you, you go
go before something called the Commission on Minutes. This is if you want to restore the minutes. And uh, there are about 12 people in each diocese that are appointed by the bishop. And you, on, a, on a certain day, to be accepted into the postulancy, you go in for a whole day, you go in periods of 45 minutes, four different times, and you, each candidate speaks to four different sets of two people. And you have to what's called articulate your call. And before you go, everyone says to you, well, you have to really be sure you, you, you can articulate your call. <laughs> oh, okay. And so you go and, you, and they ask you a question like, well, when did you first become aware that you were called to something meaningful, something that was personal to you in the life mm -hmm. of the church? And the minute they asked me that, I, I, I kind of remembered suddenly a memory of when I was about 15 years old, and I was in the junior altar deal at St. Mark Street, Fort Louisiana. It was a big church, and we were just building a big new parish hall. We just finished it, really. And once a month, these girls who were teenagers, taking our time out from our busy, totally shallow teenage lives, and come in and uh, on a Saturday morning, we would polish silver. And for some reason, we would put on a white smock. And um, for some reason, I was alone that day, sitting in this room, with the sunlight coming in through the window, it's a half basement, and the sunlight coming in. And I was totally silent. And I came from a big, noisy, happy family with five children where the silence was <laughs> practically unknown, unless it was the middle of the night and everyone was asleep. And the minute they asked me that, when did you first feel it? I knew that that was it, although I hadn't thought about it in 30 years. And so after that, I went on and talked about other things that happened in my life. I did not grow up
totally floored that I said I was going to become an ordained deacon like you. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to just say something about the deacon, as we're often told at the school for deacons. A phrase we use that the deacon is an icon of service. So you might see that I set the table for the, for the communion in just a, a, a sort of a symbolic way, and I clean up after the feast of our, our meal that we have together. And I read the gospel. I always tell the children, I'm the lady with the red book that comes in carrying the red book. Those are two things that deacons do on Sundays. But for the rest of the week, I, it came, an, an analogy came to me one day that really works for me because I grew up on cowboy movies, westerns. And it was always a fort, and the cavalry was not expected for at least 10 days. And the Indians were surrounding you. So there was a scout that go out in the fort, taking his life in his hands, most dangerous job. And then he would come back and tell the people inside the fort how much longer, how far away death was from them. So I think of deacons as kind of like those scouts. You go out into the world, and deacons very much work in the world, and most deacons are ordained to do the ministry they're already doing. I was. I did not go into the process for ordination because I tried to get into the hospital for years. And the deacon, the scout comes back in, reports from the world, and then I like to think of it in the church. It's like every six days you go out and you come back in on the seventh day to be fed, to get, to eat, to have a shower, to have a clean shirt, whatever those scouts would do. And that's the way I see the in the world, not taken out of the world at all, but right plunged into the center of the world. You could be a hospital chaplain. My Jan Eklund, as you know, is the prison, I mean, is a uh, chaplain of the Santa Rica Police Department. Prison chaplains, but you can take whatever you feel called to and make that your ministry. For example, if you love animals, you can have a ministry at the Humane Society, uh, homeless ministries, um, Ministries with children, literacy, almost anything you can think of. Um, so, let's see what else I want to say about the I said it all. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, when I went to Kentfield Hospital, which I came to from Marin General, for 18 months in Marin General, I kind of got the job at Kentfield by myself on my own. They had never had a chaplain before, and they really don't know anything about churches or whether I was ordained or not. But I figured, I realized that I needed to have some sort of authorization, like initials behind my name, because I was they knew that you were supposed to be your vet friend or something, and I wasn't. So um, the, uh, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to go to the school for deacons, because I thought maybe I could get this. I knew I wanted to be hospital chaplain, maybe I could do that. But that didn't seem like a very good thing to do. It didn't feel very authentic. So what I did was, I said when I came that first time for posthumously, I told all of those four different sets of people that, I don't know if I'm calling this or not, I'm not sure, I, I'm just doing this for a very bad reason. So give me a year, and if I come back a year from now, I'll either know that I am called or I'll, I won't continue the process. And during that year, all those patients that went certainly staff didn't know or have any idea of what it meant to be in the process for its coordination. I began to feel authorized on some deep level that just gave me more of a foundation.
typeset is something that appeals to you on some level. Just keep your eyes open for the from now on for the rest of your life and, and be thinking, what is it that draws me? What is it that maybe everyone I know would hate, but I would love? Like all my friends say, how can you do such a depressing job? I don't find it depressing at all. And so that is my message to you for today. There are some uh, brochures about the school for deacons, and outside there's some uh, envelopes if anyone would care to contribute to the school for deacons, which is in financial difficulties like everybody else these days. And um, if you ever have any ideas that you, you don't have to make a commitment, but just maybe someday. And also, I was just saying to someone, the bishop yesterday at this thing, just had to celebrate the diaconate, made a big point again about how they really want, he really wants to have more young adults in most of it, people in their middle years or over that come into it. So uh, keep this in your hearts, ask for God's guidance, and I hope that, like mushrooms, deacons will spring up as a spirit path. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907. Or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.